I don't really understand myself. I don't. I want to do what's right. I don't do it. Instead... I do what I hate. I want to do what's right. I can't. Can't do it. I want to do what's good. But I don't. Don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. I 
I've discovered this principle in life. When I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. What a miserable person I am. Thanks for your (laughs) kind words. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is? I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Picture the scene. You're on the flight deck of a spaceship. Okay, if you, if you need a little help for your imagination, Enterprise. You and your senior colleagues are sitting in massive lazy boy recliners while you shout orders at the lower ranks who are fiddling with knobs and sliding sliders and punching buttons. One has her hand to an earpiece. She's concentrating on a remote signal that's coming in from who knows where and she's trying to, trying to work out what language is this, the, uh, the Babel machine. She is, she is switching between just trying to find some kind of meaning. Meanwhile, your chief scientist, new to the crew and eager to put his doctoral thesis to good use, is gazing, confused at the readouts in front of him. Archibald, he shouts, catching your attention. It's taken you 74 yurts of training to finally make it to the rank of Archibald. Your mert and your furt were so proud. You, the first Uranian to ever command a research vessel. The shout came again, this time insistent, Archibald. You fire back an acknowledgement. Cedric, report. The Cedric turns from his monitors and starts to speak. I'm confused. The planet below is populated by intelligent creatures. I've tapped into Google, the great library of their civilization, and their moral codes and wisdom writings are amongst the most profound in the galaxy. They have highly developed understandings of love and friendship, of collaborative effort and of mutual benefit. Their stories are illustrated with thousands of examples of generosity and sacrificial giving. 
they have discovered that sometimes the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. The planet is, however, scarred with the remains of conflicts and wars. Millions of people bear the wounds of battle and more carry the emotional evidence of leaving their homelands. The scientist points to a screen and zooms down closer to the planet's surface. The picture slows and focuses on one human being. I've studied this one in detail, he says. She is called in the native tongue, Karen. And she is halfway through her lifespan. She has made a family with a male partner and has given birth to three offspring, all of whom are now mature enough to have their own young. Watch as she feeds her grandchildren the best food. Watch as she gives up her time and resources to care for her own elderly parent. Watch how she sacrifices her own pleasure for the goodness of her family. Watch as she gathers food from the shop and how she jealously defends her place in the queue. See how she fights her friend Julie for the last ripe avocado. See how she shouts abuse at the till operator who has made a mistake. The readouts from inside her mind say that she knows the wisdom teaching. And she is committed to following them. Observations suggest a difference between her belief-inspired intentions and her actions. Archibald, I don't understand. Aliens observing the earth from space and judging us purely by our actions would completely misunderstand humanity. Because for humans, what we believe is very different to how we act. Paul put it best in Romans 7.15, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. As the greatest Cedric of all time would say, that is illogical, Captain. The passage of the Bible that's always seemed the most personally painful to the writer is Romans chapter 7. We picture the Apostle Paul the greatest apostle of the New Testament, the writer of more books of the Bible than any other, the man whose conversion story is told three times, the man whose writings are the bedrock of salvation by faith, we picture him sitting on his own somewhere, trying to find the right words to fully express his inner frustration. We know from the Bible that at times when, when, when Paul was collecting his thoughts and 
communicating his thoughts. He did through, so through, through others. Tertius is mentioned. We know nothing else about Tertius other than the fact that sometimes he was writing down what Paul was saying. And at other times, Paul says, I write this by my own hand. And this is one of those times we, I, I picture him almost curled up in the corner of a room somewhere on his own, writing by his own hand. What a miserable man I am. You can't, you can't dictate that to a secretary. That's stuff for dear diary. I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Anybody identify? When I want to, when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Anybody suddenly feel like giving Paul a hug? Because I think he needs one. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. Anybody want to shout, I'm with you, Paul. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Anybody suddenly feel like, They know what it means to be an apostle. We can feel the pain inside the man. We can sense the desperation. Perhaps we know the feeling inside us at times. Perhaps sometimes we are that desperate. Paul is not alone in feeling this frustration. I'm sure I'm not the only Christian who's ever looked back on the the shambolic results of some brilliant display of humanity and thought, Gary Catch, who even are you? I'm looking in the mirror. I know that face looking back at me. It's my face. It's a bit older than it used to be. But it's the same one I've had to put up with forever. I know because, because its eyes are in my eye line. It's the face of Gary Cadge. But Reverend Cadge, check out the mess you made. Look at the people you upset. Check out the complications you have created for others to resolve. Who are you? I'm you and I don't recognize you. I know you. I know what motivates you, what drives you, what inspires you, what thrills you. I know what annoys you and disappoints you and irks your soul. So why? Why? Faced with the choice of delighting yourself and disappointing yourself, why do you so constantly, consistently choose disappointment? I don't really understand myself. 
For I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And they say the Bible's irrelevant for today. It may seem like I'm laboring the point now, but it is vital for our spiritual health that we are honest with who we are and with who our role models in the Bible really are. The Bible says we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. <laughs> and we don't like we don't tend to like the truth, do we? Truth's a bit ugly, truth's a bit messy, don't like the truth. It's a bit grubby. That can't be godly, surely. Perhaps we recoil slightly from an Apostle Paul who's not at all conquering spiritual superman. That idea of Paul curled up in the corner of a room expressing his deepest frustrations. Some of us possibly find that too too earthly, too basic, too grim to be worthy of a spiritual role model. But God deals with actual truth. I mean, God put it in the Bible. This this isn't hidden. You know, this is the news of the world has not done an expose and uncovered the truth about Paul. It's in in chapter 7 of the book of Romans. Chapter 8 is supposed to be the very center of the Bible. It's right next door. This is not hidden. If it's hidden at all, it's hidden by, by bad reading over the years. I don't really understand myself, or I do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. We can make any part of the Bible limp. But God deals with the actual truth. Not some saccharine pretend version of the truth. Because I tell you what, your lives, my life, are full of truth. I know it and you know it. And here's the news, God knows it too. And he chooses to work in that part of our lives because that's where That's where the work needs to be done. They say that addicts have to reach rock bottom before they can recover. They have to get past, I can give up when I want. I could really give up if I really tried. They have to get past, if if only everything else in my life was better, I would give up. They have to get all the way to, okay, I give in, I can't do this. then at that point of clarity and acceptance, the healing can begin. And spiritual reawakening needs the same rock bottom, the same clarity and acceptance. 
the same miserable man that I am, as Paul would put it. It's when we get past, I can do godly if I want to. We get past, I could do godly if I really put my mind to it. And past, if only I had the right surroundings, uh, life circumstances, the, uh, the right Bible, a, uh, a, a proper man cave in the garden, um, and, and uh, 17 weeks sabbatical, I would be able to be godly. It's when we finally reach, oh God, okay, I give up, I can't do this without you. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. By my own efforts, I can't do it. Paul tells us what the root of the problem is. So half the answer to most problems is finding out what's really wrong. That's, uh, I mean, that, sorry, we've just, we've just had, a, had a marital moment at the front here. Somebody said, I told you that yesterday. There is another power within me that is at war with my mind. That's what Paul says. Even the purest human soul is a battleground. Since the days of Adam and Eve and that unfortunate apple-related unpleasantness, every human has been the subject to two internal forces. God is there. We were created by God. Life is literally given through the breath of God. The Holy Spirit is involved in the creation, the DNA of mankind. We are made in the image of God. There is without doubt Godness in every person, even the most reprehensible. When Adam disobeyed God... Sin entered the world and creation fell. And from that point on, every person became a battlefield. And it's this long-standing internal fight that causes the disparity between what we want to do and what we actually do. This is the conflict. It's good versus evil. It's God versus Satan. It's what we want to do versus what we actually do. The Bible lists the fruits of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It is our tortured friend Paul who writes this. These are the evidences of 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 God in our lives, of godness. The influence of God, winning this internal battle, leads to love, joy, peace, patience. I didn't go to Sunday school. All the other ones can't get them off the top of my head. These are the evidence of the influences of God winning that internal battle. But in Colossians 3, 5, and guess who's writing this? It's Paul again. Colossians 3, 5, Paul is listing some of the evidences of ungodly influence winning. 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed are on his hit list in this verse. In other places, the ungodliness comes out as being critical, being unkind, being ungenerous, nagging your husband, infuriating your wife. There are other verses and other lists, but the point is taken. Paul recognizes there are two sets of values at war within mankind, those of God and those opposed to God. Here's the important thing. Being a Christian, committing ourselves to God and his will, deciding to be one of Jesus' little sunbeams, does not mean we are immediately immune to the influence of evil. We are free from the penalty. When we get to heaven, we will be let in. We are free from the stain and the prison of sin. But we are not free from the temptation and influence of sin. For years, evangelists sold the idea of the brand new life in Christ, which will change everything overnight. And from this moment, you will live in victory with trumpets and angels singing hallelujah. It's not difficult to find verses that, as a preacher, you can use to preach this message. It's Paul again. Romans chapter 6. Be thanks to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that's now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This sounds a lot like come to Christ and you will be free from sin. It sounds a lot like come to Christ and you won't sin anymore. In Romans 8, our very own tortured Paul says, However, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, They do not belong to Christ. And the preacher can make this sound very much like when you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you and you can tell whether the Holy Spirit is living within you because if he is, then you'll follow the ways of the Spirit and not the ways of flesh. And if it turns out you're following the ways of flesh, you clearly don't have the Spirit of Christ, which means you don't belong to Christ. Paul's words can be used to pressurize Christians into thinking that if they mess up, they are not saved. Surely, if we were Christ's, we would not sin. It's simple logic. But so often, simple logic is really unhelpful logic. At the point where Paul is at his most exposed and vulnerable in chapter 7, where he is calling himself miserable and is crying out to God because of contradictions he feels in himself, he tells us the answer to the problem. 
7.24 and 25 says, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. It is purely and only through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that you and I, tempted and frustrated by sin as we are, fighting evil within ourselves as we are, are able to stand tall and accepted in the presence of a holy God. (coughs) Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The preacher who wants to simplify matters by describing a trouble-free salvation that solves all our problems instantly misses out the most profound and powerful truth that through salvation in Christ, our acceptance into the family of God is assured even though we're still troubled by temptation and sin. Paul Paul is frustrated with himself. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? But on the other hand, he knows that despite the truth of his life, God loves him and has accepted him because when he was saved, he repented before God with all his heart. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what that verse means. It doesn't mean there's no condemnation because you're never going to do anything wrong in your life again. It means there is no condemnation because God has accepted you into his family and Jesus has paid the price for those sins already. That's why there's no condemnation, because Jesus has dealt with it. It's not a license to sin. But it's a promise that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That sounds like Paul again, doesn't it? Not what you've done in the past. Not what you'll do in the future. And certainly not the muppetry you found yourself doing yesterday, which you've been beating yourself up over. Jesus has dealt with that and has set you free. Accept it and live in it. When, when the Archibald and the Cedric are looking down from their spaceship and they're seeing a people whose actions don't match their ethics and their moral wisdom, they are understandably confused. What they can't see is the God who inspires the ethics and the morals and who sees the behavior, and who loves the being so much that he went to their planet and died for them so they could be set free from their own inconsistencies and mistakes. One day, we will be free of temptation. One day, our faith-inspired beliefs and our actions will match. It'll happen on the day we enter heaven. Until then, we live, we learn, we struggle with ourselves, we drive ourselves around the bend at times. Until then, we live in the knowledge that God wants the best for us and of us. 
but loves us anyway. Will you stand with me, please? I don't very often lead prayers, but this is it's a very simple prayer. And it is simply stating what we've just been looking at. Lord, thank you for guiding me into godliness. Lord, I really enjoy getting things right. Lord, you know that I'm also pressured by evil. Lord, I really don't enjoy messing up and getting things wrong. Lord, thank you for forgiving my past sins, my present sins, and indeed my future sins. Lord, thank you for accepting me into your family. Lord, please let me live in the freedom you won for me on the cross. Amen. Thank you.